So you used to be a theatre maker and now you're a content creator. What can we do in this space? We can't do on a stage. You can sit at home and you can drink wine and you can listen to a theatre play. And who knows if something is live or not. Welcome to our Viral Theatre podcast, a series of four episodes based on our 2021 hybrid conference on the topic. I'm Heidi Wiedke, Assistant Professor of English Literature based at the University of Koblenz-Landau, Campus Landau. I'm Monika Petschak-Frange, Professor of British Cultural and Literary Studies based at the University of Vienna. In this episode, we are presenting you with an edited recording of the final Q&A discussion from our conference with Anna Brzezinska, Josh Edelman, Lucy Askew and Cornelius Puschke, chaired by Eckhart Vogts. The Q&A beautifully brings together a number of thematic threads that were central to our conference. Because of that, it will give you, listeners, a sense of the variety of voices that we have brought together, but also hopefully provide a solid foundation for future academic work. Welcome from me. Uh, my name is Eckhart Fuchs. I'm your chair for the final panel today, a roundtable on post-COVID-19 art world, world's new challenges. And I thought, I'd, you know, just before we begin with both virtual and uh, sort of really present um, uh, contributors, I thought I'd just do a little a little roundup of what we've been talking about and to bring everybody up to date and maybe repeat some of the key words that we've been talking about. So we've been talking a great deal about so crises, various kinds of crises, crises that started even before COVID began and so obviously also about fixes that you know, we, we have seen, we can see uh, for the situation. Uh, there was always a balance of losses and gains in that. And COVID has been both a threat to theatre, I think, and also, and various speakers have articulated that, an opportunity. So really happy to have with us uh, Lucy Askew, uh, Josh Edelman, uh, Anna Brzezinska, and Cornelius Pushka. And I'm going to introduce them soon. We've been talking about various kinds of new theatre that emerged in the past year. This has been variously described as viral, digital, virtual, streamed, live streamed, Zoom theater, XR theater, maybe made for digital, hybrid, and so on. A good example, I think, that I know was uh, Memento Mori by uh, 90s Productions, uh, something that I saw that was you know, transmitted live into my living room, actually. Um, and those of you who've seen it, that's something I could recommend we could talk about. But of course, also something like Bob Burnham's Inside, which is a, a Netflix show, obviously, uh, by a stand-up comedian that's readily available uh, to you via Netflix. And to some extent, I think that's the elephant in the room at this conference. And to some extent, I don't think it's been referenced a great deal, but maybe that's something we should also talk about. I think the speakers, without taking too well, putting too much pressure on them or taking stuff away from them. These are the dimensions we're going to talk about, and we have been talking about. Aesthetics, uh, we've been talking a great deal about affect, uh, about ethics of this new or emerging theatre, the economic consequences, the political dimension, and also technologies. So I think we'll continue with these key words in some way. We've been talking about the, the effect of COVID on the cultural industries, about theatre making, theatre dissemination, 
and also, of course, a great deal about audiences. And I, what I really like about the discussion so far is the way that we talk about paradoxes. This is, for me, the figure of speech that dominates the conference, paradox. We've been talking about theater without theater, about Schrödinger's theater, less theater and more theater at the same time, uh, about a theater where nobody's coming, but everybody's there. We've been talking about communities and isolation at the same time, and about kinds of liveness and the effects of an archive. And to pick up that term again, we've been debating whether there's an ontological difference between physical co-presence and digital co-presence, which we have actually at this conference. So without taking too much time away uh, from our speakers, now I'll introduce them uh, to you. We'll begin maybe with the virtuals. And it's a great pleasure to introduce uh, Lucy Astu, who's uh, Chief Executive and Creative Producer at Creation Theatre. And we've been seeing a lot of your productions over the past days. I love the narrative that you find here. She came to the company after escaping her homeland of High Wycombe during university summer holidays. Lucy ran off to Oxford for two weeks work experience with a crazy troupe of players called Creation Theatre. These formative two weeks turned out to be not long enough for Lucy and she returned to creation in 2008 as education manager. And after five years of testing almost every position in the company, Lucy finally settled on that of chief executive and has had the honor of presiding over creation's productions of Jekyll and Hyde, Henry V, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, Macbeth, The Wind of the Willows, As You Like It, Alice, and so on. And we've seen a lot of that. So welcome, Lucy. And... Um, the briefing, I think, is that you have prepared, I think, a brief statement about your take on post-COVID theatre. So can I just invite you to share this now? And a very warm welcome from us here at Hanover. Hello. Lovely to be here. Really enjoyed the slide with the V in brackets to denote virtual, because it makes me feel like we're the vegetarian item on the menu. <laughs> I'm going to steal that and use that again in stuff we do. Um, yeah, so we're Creation Theatre and some of you will have seen our work and, and I'm sure our work has been um, talked about a bit. We've collaborated a lot with Big Telly and I know Zoe was doing a talk earlier today. We are traditionally a site-specific theatre company. Um, so we've never owned a theatre or a building or managed a building. So we've always been a bit nomadic and we've popped up in parks and industrial estates, bookshops, uh, tents, libraries, basically any space that we felt was, a, you know, an interesting place to tell a story and, and engage with an audience. And we were sort of mentioned that because I think it's one of the things that has made creation sort of uniquely placed to adapt very quickly um, to the digital world and in the post-COVID world because we were used to working in a space where there were lots of unknowns and lots of rules that we hadn't imposed ourselves. So when you go into a venue that's not yours, you're not allowed to do certain things. You have very restricted hours of what you could do. Um, but you also cope with a lot of completely unpredictable elements. So if you're open air, you cope with the rain or thunderstorms or snow or ducks walking through a show. Um, so I think because we were so used to that, I think that's one of the reasons that when we were doing our first production with um, Big Telly of The Tempest, we were very resilient to the limitations of working in Zoom. And we were very resilient to bandwidth issues and technology issues. A thing that has enabled us to kind of really embrace the medium and be very excited about it because we never felt limited by it we always felt like it was sort of natural for us to have these kind of boundaries and limitations that we were working within now our first production was the tempest with big telly and 
from the moment we were staging that first show, it has not felt at all for creation at any moment, like making the digital work was a compromise on making a show, an analog show, <laughs> a real world show, an in-person show, however you want to call it. We absolutely just fell in love with the possibilities of what we could do. Um, I think we just have felt that it's, for us, it's like we found a medium that is, you know, we don't identify it really as being digital theatre, although we use that term a lot because it feels like a shortcut to explaining the work. We feel it's as much live TV or live gaming and building on film discipline as well, and that it really is its own new medium that's evolving. Um, and I think that's, if you haven't seen the work we've done, I think one of the reasons that that's so, that sense is so strong in our work is that what we've never done is make a theatre show and then streamed it. We've never kind of put something on a stage, set up a camera and then invited an audience to watch it because we feel the real potential is about what can we do in this space we can't do on a stage. And one of the things we've realized really quickly was that one of the things we can do in this space that we can't do on a stage is hugely fantastical worlds. So we've done Alice in Wonderland, we've done The Wizard of Oz, we've done The Tempest, and um, we've done Tales from the Brothers Grimm, we've done in a real kind of fantasy world, because actually a lot of those stories in a kind of a real space, creating them and building sets and puppets and costumes, although it's an amazing challenge to do, are very expensive. And actually for a sort of mid-scale theatre company like us, you know, often it's really difficult to deliver the experience you want to. Whereas in the virtual world, there is so much more that we can do playing with green screens and chroma key and film editing, mixing the live and the pre-filmed we think is really exciting. And I think opens up so many interesting sort of academic questions about liveness and how we value liveness and who knows if something is live or not um, and what that means if we think something's live and it's not live or vice versa so we found it to be a medium we're just genuinely really really excited to keep exploring and on every show we're seeing the possibilities that we haven't explored yet and going oh, we want to do more with this and we want to do more and what if and what if Along the way, the other thing that's been really significant for us is that we sort of started to notice that for a long time we'd been trying to champion being more sustainable um, and making our reducing our carbon um, emissions as a company, but really in quite a um, you know slightly blinkered way of ignoring the impact of audience travel and just worrying about what we could do to recycle a set. And when we started crunching the numbers into you know digital theatre where an audience don't travel we realised it was a 96% reduction in carbon emissions. And as a result of that, it led to us getting Innovate UK funding um, to do more work in the digital sphere. And we had a rep company for six months. We've built our own platform, Auditorium. We now don't have to be in Zoom. We can be in our own digital theatre space. But we also did a lot more work into the, that sort of sustainability thread and wrote a report into the sort of impact and carbon reductions. And, and actually our initial figures were a bit conservative. And once you add in the changes to sort of performers travel, once you add the changes in of not making sets and theatrical lighting, we're actually coming out at a 98.9% reduction in carbon emissions. And I think the thing that kind of is most striking with that is that a single sheet of eight by four plywood that we would use to build a set or a set of treads up to a stage has the same carbon impact as an entire run of one of our digital shows. 
and that's allowing for the power of the families using their computers at home, the power used by our performers, the lights used by our performers. So we're, we're really excited about it as being something that is far more, you know, it's a new medium, but also it could be a way that the industry and the performing arts could start to really really make some sort of disruptive changes to what we can do to reduce our carbon impact. Thanks. That, that, that was, I think, a new aspect here that we haven't really addressed properly. And I think that probably invites uh, discussion afterwards. Thanks, Lucy. And uh, so I pass on to the next speaker, to the next vegetarian speaker here. Uh, that'll be Josh. <laughs> Josh Edelman, Senior Sorry. Lecturer of Drama and Contemporary Performance at Manchester School of Theatre, a member of the Art and Performance Research Hub which focuses on practice-based and theoretical research in contemporary art and performance. Recent outputs include co-authoring two books, one, The Problem of Theatrical Autonomy, Analyzing Theatre as Social Practice by Amsterdam UP and Performing Religion Public by Paul Grave Macmillan. He's the author of numerous book chapters and journal articles focusing on contemporary performance. And I'm sort of intrigued by this idea of a religious dimension uh, to maybe post-COVID theatre as well. So I'm really looking forward to hearing from you, Josh. Well, that is what I'm going to talk about. So I'm, I'm glad. Thank you very much for having me here. And I'm, I'm very sorry I can't be with you in person, though we can talk about the ontology of presence, but just the experience of it, I'd rather be there. I'm coming to you with a pair of related hats. One, as you said, I teach at the Manchester School of Theatre. So like many of you, I've been feeling the effects of the pandemic that's had on our art form. And I, I'm part of a research project that's looking at the devastating and transformational effects that the pandemic has had on freelancers working in the bridge theater, the working conditions of freelancers. In Britain, I think unlike Germany, freelancers make up the vast, vast majority of theater workers. The numbers, I've seen everything up to 85%, but I think conservatively, I can say more than 70. And the pandemic has changed their relationship with their employers in a way that's not going to be undone anytime soon, and I think is going to shape what British theatre making looks like for a generation. But the second hat, which is, I think, the reason that actually got my invitation here, is that one of my central research interests is the overlap between theatre and religion. Uh, one way to put that is between aesthetic performance, live art, dance, theatre, and ritual performance. And for the past year, I've been leading a project called British Ritual Innovation under COVID-19, or you can call it BRIC-19. Uh, and the point is that religious life in Britain as around the world has been disrupted by the pandemic at least as much as theater has. And the normal face-to-face -face means by which religious rituals usually take place have suddenly become impossible. Uh, and clergy like theater makers have had to adapt their work on the fly to this crisis. And of course, some have been more successful than others. Our project was aiming to look at those adaptations across the breadth of British religious life, all faiths, uh, all geographic locations, to the extent that we could, uh, both what has been done and how it's been received. We've looked at regular weekly daily worship. We've looked at special events like holidays and pilgrimages and life cycle events like weddings, baptisms, and of course, funerals. We've looked at the infrastructure, both intellectual and organizational, surrounding those rituals, and crucially the ways in which they build, sustain, and reconstruct a notion of what it is to be in community. 
You know, the social and economic place of religion is not the same as the arts, obviously. We expect different things from them. We give them different rights. We engage with them differently. But part of the reason that I, I do this work is that I see a lot of connections between these two fields. Theater folks have a lot to learn from ritual specialists and vice versa, I'd argue. Certainly, I know a lot of clergy over the last year who have had a real crash course in things like lighting and sound that you probably all know very well. And that crash course would have been much less painful if they had brought a theater pro in from the beginning. Frankly, the smart ones did exactly that. Um, but what I want to share with you just to start off is kind of three broad findings from our analysis from the Brick 19 project that I think may be particularly important to theater folks. I'm happy to discuss more on questions. I have lots of opinions I'd love to share. But though I'm not going to be talking about theater explicitly, I think you will be able to make those links. And I would be really interested to see how you do so. So first, obviously, a lot of worship has gone online in the same way that theater has gone online. The Internet loves anonymity. And the only geographical boundary that exists online is a time zone, and sometimes not even that. And that means a vast, vast opening up of the possibilities for play, experimentation, and shopping around for new experiences. Especially early on in the pandemic, a lot of houses of worship saw a huge increase in online attendance from folks who would never dare show up in their physical building. This was low commitment spiritual sampling. It was safe, it was engaging, it was attractive, especially in those unsettling times of, say, a year ago. Now, the vast majority of those visitors didn't stay, aren't still there. And this is not at all a bad thing. Trying out new things that are far from your comfort zone is itself nourishing. And there's work to be done aesthetically, spiritually, with this kind of vast community of the curious. But some did stay, and some started to feel that this online community was their authentic spiritual home. I know of at least two cases where people moved internationally overseas in order to live closer to the community that they had found online. And as our digital culture colleagues have argued for ages, let's not pretend that online communities and online experiences are something other than real experiences. They are real experiences. The thing is that they have their own structure and grammar, which we need to learn. Second, we found that engagement is more important than quality. Uh, to some extent, there is a Hollywood effect out there. Uh, there are churches and synagogues which are putting out amazing and highly produced shows. This comes, I think, at some point from the idea that everything on a screen at home looks like Netflix. And we are so used to seeing such slick, well-made material on demand that anything less than that will look cheap and unappetizing and amateurish. There are very technologically sophisticated broadcasts out there, uh, religious broadcasts, most of which are American. Um, they do get a lot of attention. Everybody loves a great choir. Everyone loves something you can see and hear. It's beautiful. Nothing wrong with that. And again, this is nothing new. There's a whole genre of the megachurch that is all about putting on a really great show, and they've been doing it online for years. But at least in Britain, we found that most people, frankly, don't care. They will watch the show, but it doesn't really do much to them. It's very surfacy. It's entertaining, which is an insult in religious terms. What they want is a feeling of being with others, of genuine human engagement, of doing the work of worship together, all of these things that we lump under the term community, and even if that community is temporary. And that being together can be human and messy. It's not a problem. If the worship leader makes mistakes, if there are errors, frankly, that's just endearing. 
um, if somebody drops a camera, if somebody uh, slips up on their words, that just draws people in more. That humanity is more important than the quality. Trying to, for instance, grieve the death of a loved one alone from behind a computer screen is agonizing unless you feel like your ritual is being effectively shared. And the adherence to doctrinal rules or the quality of the picture or the sound or the professionalism of it is nice, but it's not the key thing. Now, liveness is no guarantee that this sense of being together will be there. And virtuality is no guarantee that it won't be there. We could see this in our surveys, for instance. We ask people to describe their experience of ritual in a matrix of adjectives, both before and during the pandemic. And broadly speaking, I can go into more details, everything got worse during the pandemic. And some things made it, ameliorated this decline more than others. Live streaming didn't do much, and socially distant in-person rituals, that is people in the same room, but maybe with masks, maybe at two meters from each other, restrictions on whether they could sing or participate, those were especially bad. For a lot of people, those were worse than nothing. What did seem to help somewhat was Zoom, conference call software. Uh, this was interestingly mostly amongst congregants. Leaders did not see that. Leaders tend to hate Zoom, and frankly, for good reason, it is terrible with all due respect to our hosts. Um, you can't sing, you can't speak in unison, there's background noise, there's cats going through, people interrupt you, they forgot but on my unmute, there's feedback, all these things. And if you think of yourself as a worship leader as trying to put out the best product possible, the best performance possible, Zoom would be a terrible idea of where to do it. But again, that was not the most important thing. People being able to see each other's faces and to see that other people were engaged made them feel like co-participants and not viewers. This also might reflect the popularity of outdoor rituals. I'm thinking of what Lucy has done in terms of, you know, why site-specific is so interesting. British weather is an issue. British weather does not always make for easy sight and sound. But again, being together is that key thing. And third, I think there's something politically going on here as well. And this is religion-specific, but I think there are probably theatrical parallels. There are some bells that can't be unrung. The pandemic has led to a kind of profusion of new innovation and ritual and a sense amongst people that they can just go out and get whatever they want from the world. The menu has extended broadly. And certainly we saw that in theater. You know, all of a sudden I could see like, hey, I want to see a classic from the Worcester group in the 70s. It was just there online, right? People may go back to their local parish once this is over, and, and they will because people miss being together in beautiful buildings, but they are going to still expect to have access to that breadth. And if the local parish doesn't give that to them, that will be the end of the parish system. Uh, lay people have made for themselves all sorts of things like queer worship spaces to daily group meditations, some of which are kind of high church musicals, some of which are druidic. Talmudic study groups for Orthodox Jewish women who are not traditionally allowed to do that. All of these new practices, they're not going to go away because some gatekeeper says you can't do that anymore. They were never authorized by any gatekeeper and the, there was no one to put them back in the bottle. And so there's been a lot of worry, I think, as part of that, of what church folks are calling the Amazonification of religion, which I think might mean something different than the way you've been using it. Broadly, it's the idea that all of this online activity is going to undermine bricks and mortar churches and force them to close. And what we'll be left with is kind of broad but thin form of digital religion where you can find anything you want, but all of it is just another shiny consumer product from which you can choose and none of it has that depth of spiritual community that people want. Now, 
I don't share this fear as much as others because I think gathering people in a room together is one of the best technologies we have for sharing meaningful community. We are embodied beings after all. And it's something that we have a very basic longing for. But I do think the challenge for this new world we're entering is gonna be how to bring that range of experience that we've had online into the room in some way and to keep a hold on these new audiences that have been engaged with religious or theatrical life over the last year. Now, how to achieve that bringing in in a way that feels organic, human, not overproduced is really part of the larger question of the, the shape of human culture or post-human culture, if you want, in the digital age. It's not easy, but I think it's an urgent one. So thank you. Thanks, George. Lots of food for thought here on modes of engagement. In a way, I mean, COVID forces us to think these things properly through spaces of theater and also modes of engagement in various forms of theater, whether we call it theater or not. I mean, there are other names, obviously. Thanks. So um, now on the non-vegetarian menu here, uh, Anna Bruzinska. I uh, studied Polish literature and theater history. I teach at Jagiellonian University in Krakow and my main field of interest are contemporary European theater, dance and music, also history of drama, 19th to 21st century, and uh, yes, and also media, and uh, how they are involved in the transmission of ideas, uh, emotions, and so on. For us, you really to, to talk about many emotions. Um, yes. In fact, I think that history repeats itself or herself, at least uh, to some extent. So being asked about the future of theater in uh, the times of COVID or post-COVID, I think that maybe we should try to make an experiment to try to travel in time and jump back exactly 100 years because we could witness the birth of public radio then. And I think it's very interesting how similar the situation was, because there are many problems that could be addressed both as we are talking about broadcasted uh, theater performances in 1920s and to streaming uh, streamed performances right now. For example, at first, the theater plays were broadcasted um, in a very direct way. They were translated. I think this idea of translation fits here very, very well. So that the stage productions were translated into radio language, but they were basically like theater for the blind. And then new hybrid forms were invented. And then a completely new genre was born, I would say, Hirschpiel or Ars Acoustica, radio art in different countries, we call it very different way. And then some other inventions like, for example, stereo came up and it was a little bit like playing with split screen because you could use both channels in an independent way and create something that was completely different. So I think the similarities are really striking and also there were some opportunities born at the time and also some dangers were 
present, I would say. The first opportunity was, I can relate to what was said half an hour before my speech. Fantasy world was suddenly very interesting for radio artists and first Polish radio productions were mostly of 19th century plays that were too complicated, too strange, too weird to put them on stage. And suddenly using radio, you could put on stage magical creatures, uh, flying objects, traveling in time and so on and so on. On the other hand, first radio artists dreamt about global art, about transcending borders, about transmitting their work in all possible countries and time zones. And also a political value was very important. I mean, cultural politics, for example, in France in 1920s, very early on, there was the idea to broadcast all the best productions from Paris. So all the people living in in villages somewhere, you know, in the Alps could listen to them because they, they couldn't afford going to Paris and watching very expensive, huge productions of new plays or new operas. So this was this idea to make art more democratic and to broadcast it so everyone could take part in the best possible, highest art uh, that France had to offer at the time. And also, I think it's quite similar right now. And at least that was the idea behind some of, of the projects. Suddenly, I was able to watch Comédie Française performances in Krakow and performances from New York and so on and so on. So again, I think it's another similarity, a very, very important one. But on the other hand, critics of radio were afraid that radio is going to kill live theater because nobody is going to travel to theater. It's dangerous, it's expensive, it takes lots of time. You can sit at home and you can drink wine and you can listen to a theater play and experience it in such an easy way. And so they were all afraid that probably radio would completely replace live theater, but of course it it, it didn't happen. So so I think that maybe looking at uh, the history of radio and radio broadcast and how it changed could really help us to predict further development of digital theater, virtual theater, online theater, streamed theater. Thanks. I mean, that made me think that a video killed the radio star. I'm sure, I'm sure, I'm sure Andrew Lloyd Webber would agree that COVID-19 has killed his Cinderella right now in the West End. So and I really like this idea of a rearrangement of the spatial organization of theater and that this old logic of margins and centers is now sort of maybe not displaced, but, you know, it's different now. Thanks. And finally, uh, I'd like to introduce as part of our panel uh, Cornelius Puschke who's with us from, is it Hamburg, really? Where are you based now? Berlin. Berlin, where he's actually working with, uh, with the Domini Protocol. Uh, he's been developing a number of projects with them since uh, 2008. He's uh, the artistic director and curator of various projects, including, but not limited to, post-pandemic theater. I always tempted to say post 
dramatic theater. I think that's an intended pun, maybe. Black market for useful knowledge and non-knowledge, and me followed by an action. And he's been working and taught in Hamburg, Berlin, St. Gallen, Ludwigshafen, and Vienna, lots of places again. I also read about his former life as a football journalist, <laughs> that's correct, and the job of guarding nuns, which I find completely intriguing. But I think today he's going to focus on a, a most more recent project that's very interesting in our context. That's uh, 1,000 scores, pieces for here, now, and later. So welcome to Cornelius, floor is yours. Thanks, and thanks for the invitation. Yes, well, I would like to present 1,000 uh, scores to you, which is basically a website, or we call it an online platform for newly commissioned performance scores. Uh, we initiated it in April 2020, so pretty much in the beginning of the lockdown, at least in Germany. And um, we launched it in June, um, so still during the first lockdown here. And I think the easiest way to get in touch with it is if I just share my screen and you have a look at it. So hopefully you see everything now. So this is the website where we uh, have 99 performance scores of I think 94 or something artists and behind each window or image one performance score is uh, hidden so to say and to grasp it and to get a better understanding of it I think it's the best if I just show you one piece so you can go through the menu click at artists and there you see all the artists and the pieces that they contributed And I think microbial gestures by Elaine Whittaker from Toronto is a really beautiful piece. And I just uh, read it aloud so you can all hear what it's about. The pandemic has made us aware that more than ever, all of us are touched by microbes. Microbes are the oldest form of life on earth. They are a fundamental part of the world we live in and they terrify us. An invisible inhabitant with the possibility of contaminating our, our cellular lives. Most microbes are harmless, coexisting on us, around us, and within us, making up our personal microbiome. They are smaller than a human cell, and we can only see them through the microscope. And on our skin, they form an invisible ecosystem, working to keep it and us healthy. So now the, the score, the performance score is starting. Consider your hands. The microbes on your hands are part of your individual microbiome. They colonize and commingle on your fingers, your palm, between your fingers, the back of your hand. The skin of your hand is teeming with life. It is a living part of you, vital with microbes, and most of these are harmless. So I think these are the hands of Elaine Whittaker, and here are the fingers, and what's going on? Imagine your microbes. We are now washing our hands more than ever before. We are hyper aware of everything we touch outside our households. We dread knowing that they could be a conduit for transporting outside microbes. So we anxiously wash again and again and yet again. During this pandemic year, we have been exposed to the many colorful images of SARS-CoV-2, the virus that caused COVID-19. Scientists and illustrators have introduced us to this virus, comparing it to other viruses and microbes. Microbes of all shapes and sizes populate new casts and social media almost daily. They linger in our imaginations, individually and in clusters. Spherical beads, spiky balls, sausage-like rods. Make your microbes visible. Turn your hands into a canvas of life. 
bring out your markers, your paint, your pens, draw your microbes on one hand and then the other. Mark your skin with microbes. Visualize the microbes that live on your hands, make them visible. Reveal this hidden world with color, with form, with shape, with joy. They are ubiquitous, a carnival, a festival, an explosion of commingling life. Celebrate your wondrous microbial by community. You are them, they are you. So yeah, that's pretty much it. And she wrote it or composed it on March 9th this year. And it was commissioned by us, the project, so to say, and the Goethe Institute Toronto. And performance goals like these, we, yeah, we commissioned, I think, yeah, 95 or something. And uh, now they are all on this website and they all appeared on the website like twice, two, two new scores each week, starting last June. And um, yeah, they are somehow, I think, portraying the pandemic somehow on a pretty global perspective, I think. And um, with artists from all continents, pretty much all continents. Well, I think there are so many, many more things to say about it, but to keep it short, I think that's uh, enough to say to get a first impression of it. And um, yeah, maybe we'll find some other things to say about, about it, but I think that's fine so far. Well, thanks. I, uh, thanks for this. My first question would be, obviously, do you think that many of these ideas really, or, or well, scores, as, the, as you call them, are they going to ever be put into practice? I mean, where, are you ever going to see any theatre emerging from this? Is this the idea? Could Lucy, for instance, jump right in and say, yes, I would like to do a score with you or something? Sure, I think, I, well, the idea why we decided to uh, work on this score aesthetic or score form was, of course, that everybody was in lockdown and it was pretty much not a good idea to go outside. So you were confronted with yourself, so there was nothing else besides, well, of course, sitting on the front of a screen and seeing films or Zoom conferences or so, but getting, getting uh, confronted with yourself and your body and your like self-perception, so to say. Uh, performance score can give you, I think, uh, directions or certain experiences that you wouldn't make uh, during a film, I think. And in this case, well, it's, it's, I think it's pretty close to, let's say, music, where, of course, uh, when you compose something, it's, it's, just, it's just written to conduct it or to, to, to execute it somehow. And same uh, with, with dance, of course, no? like a choreography classically something written down, there was a notation for it. And I think that was the idea to create something that people can use, like a, like a tool set or like, a, um, like an instruction to create a IKEA shelf and to give this as a present or something that is helpful for your everyday life. And I think that was the background of the, or the idea behind the project to create something that accompanies you through the pandemic and that is always there when you need it and not only on time or like an eight, PM starting or so, but when you need it, or when you want it, or when, when you're looking for, for, for help or for uh, uh, somebody that talks to you or like a certain voice or so, this can be there somehow, right? If it's theater or not, I, I don't not care so much about that question, but of course you can discuss it. I think it's just a performance tool that you can, can help you through a pandemic and it was the main idea behind it. So it's yet another form of hybrid theater. Mm. Uh, Lucy, would you like to respond to that? Do you work in similar ways? I mean, do you, how do you get your ideas for your 
uh, productions. Uh, I think we were talking a little bit. You started saying there are certain genres that are prone to that kind of media setup or so. Uh, yeah, no, I think uh, it's funny because in the like how we choose what shows we're doing and how we end up doing a show, it's often hard to unpick how we did end up. It often feels like the universe kind of provides the thoughts and the the alchemy and the right moment. So The Tempest was the first one because we'd worked with Zoe Seaton and Big Telly and we'd done that in the real world before and then built on from that. But actually there's been loads of loads of the productions over the last year have sort of evolved from from a whole variety of different stimulus and ideas and I think what's what's really interesting of that idea of scores is that actually that particularly when you visualize that being in that lockdown space and where we couldn't go out and and looking for that inspiration and those connections and artistic possibilities I can see how that you know one of the things we with our sort of rep company we tried to do R&D and, and, and kind of not be on a treadmill of constantly making shows, but we found it quite, quite difficult actually remotely in different spaces to kind of know where you start getting those artistic jumping off points from. And actually I'm thinking, I wish we'd had, I wish I'd been aware of this then, because actually that would have been a really useful tool to have for people to be able to respond to things individually and then share them and yeah. Cornelius, would you like to speak a little bit about the process of commissioning? That's something I'd be interested in. Yeah, uh, well, that's not so easy to answer, to be honest, because we, like the three of us, it's important to say I did it together with David Helbig, a composer and performance artist from Brussels, and Helga Tauch from Rimini Protocol. And the three of us do not really see ourselves as like curators or so, that feel the urge to narrow a certain question or so, but more to, to, to create spaces or create a place where people can act that, that is helpful and useful for their artistic work and also for the audience a place where they can be free in the way how they how they use it and when and in which way so executing the performance score in a, in the right or proper way doesn't play a role at all i would say but of course each artist has a different perspective on that question because some like like really precisely and others say well do whatever you want with it and if you want to just read just read it and um well the, the selection process was quite easy to to describe because we were always working together with partnering institutions um, because of course we didn't have any money right because every show was cancelled and there was no money at all but in April we we thought we have to do something there is a need and an urge to, to, to act somehow and to create a space and we knew that the theaters still have their money right so they were cancelling all the shows but the money was there so we thought okay let's, let's find an approach to get the money not for us but for other artists as well so um to, to create a space where also solidarity between artists is possible was another aspect of course to spread the money into the world because one thing like the only thing that would be totally wrong if the money of the institutions would stay at the institutions and would not go to the artists so then was the other urge, of course, uh, to say, let's create an alternative business, uh, <laughs> how to make people uh, get money and get paid. Mm -hmm. And so selecting the artists in the end was a collaborational process together with the partnering and co-producing institutions, but more, I would say, in like a explorational or like a chain reaction kind of way, but less uh, a question of selecting or so. We're more asking the, the, the other theaters or the other institutions what they were interested in or what their perspective on the pandemic is or what they think that their audience 
has like certain needs or so and try to respond to it and uh, it was sometimes a bit chaotic and we're we're letting loose of control and so but this was also our interest okay um i have a question for josh actually you were talking about how the religious sphere has also been transformed by consequences of covid mm -hmm. and also how i mean like theaters how we nudge to think about form in different ways and what sort of new forms do you see in that particular sphere sort of emerging? I'd be interested to, in a way, to learn about the theatricalities of, of that of that sphere, uh, whether that's similar or different from the theater sphere. Well, I mean, it's a very good question. Let's put it this way. I absolutely believe, and, you know, anthropologically, we can see the emergence of new ritual forms. It's not a surprise. Thus, it has always been you know, you can document it. But there's a, maybe you should say, a conservative tendency within a lot of religions that doesn't like that, that likes to claim that these forms are eternal. The reality is, of course, they're not. It got to the point where the word innovation, which was in our project title, was kind of a red flag for some people. And we started to use the word adaptation instead, because it pissed people off less. I have no interest in debating the difference between those two modes. I think part of it is about the kind of the grammar that we're seeing. So when you lose access to, we're going to do something together in a room, what can you do? So there's a couple of genres that I've seen. One is things that are shorter, more casual, and more common. So like a daily meditation, a daily worship, even a 10-minute thing that some churches are putting out. I mean, in a sense, they've always been there, but nobody's really cared. Now people are engaging with it. They're using it as kind of a part of their day. And I think there's, you know, there's a traditional role of ritualist, a, a time marker. I think that's it. And part of the other thing is there's this kind of more casual engagement, you know, people watching a service as they cook dinner, as they do something else, not necessarily giving it 100% of their attention, which before would have been sacrilegious, you know? but now is kind of a thing. And some churches and synagogues especially are beginning to embrace that and say, you know what, we're gonna provide that. We're going to offer you something that is designed to be engaged with in that way. I mean, thinking about radio as well, you know, that there was a time when people listened to the radio by sitting there and staring at it. And that's not generally how we listen even to podcasts anymore, which is a genre I love. So there's that. The other thing I think, you know, one of the traditional theological questions is the power of the clergyman, of the religious leader. You know, Protestants and Catholics have fought wars over this, how much authority the priest has. The camera enables a certain intimacy that you wouldn't otherwise have in a religious context. You can use that in very different ways. You know, at some level that I think can lead to a emphasis on the charisma or the individuality of a particular celebrant. This is a direction that, say, American megachurches have, or, or megachurches around the world, though I, I say American, they're actually quite big in, in sub-Saharan Africa as well, um, has gone for a very long time. But it can also really upend that power dynamic, because the camera can look at anybody. We don't need the authorization of ordination to put somebody in front of the camera. So, for instance, the, the women's prayer groups that I've been seeing, literally are giving women religions that tend not to give women a voice, literally are giving them a voice that they didn't have before, letting them be seen and heard to be religiously active and leading. That's really powerful. So I think there's a power upset, but the new forms that are emerging, I think there's something about regularity 
there's something about intimacy and there's something about, I want to say casualness. I don't really like that word, but something other than giving your full attention. Uh, and people hate that, by the way. Some people hate that, but it's certainly, it's certainly coming up. All right, I totally see that. Before we actually address the questions that are emerging now, one question for me as well. Let's look at the differences in institutional setups between, say, Britain and Germany, and maybe also the institutions of you know, religion and the institutions of theater. And there are vast differences. And I mean, when you said, you know, oh, there was this money, and you know, we need to find ways to actually elicit it from the system. Mm. Whereas I think in the UK, basically, was a problem of there's no money. Uh, and you know, there's nothing to, to gain. And that's, of course, you, know, you have rectory companies, etc. That's, of course, being took, it's different from you know, just putting on a show for you know, two or three months or so. So, I mean, in a way, I think COVID has highlighted these and, and put into focus this, these differences. Your example of the analogy with the innovation of radio in the 20s and so on, that's of course different if you have a crisis, like an institutional economic crisis with that, or just an impetus from a new technology that, you know, creates a big hub and probably also creates a lot of money that's going to be put into that system. That was a short statement. Maybe you'd like to react to that or not. <laughs> Well, maybe I can, because I think there is like another elephant in the room that was not addressed before. I mean, the pandemic crisis is connected with ecological crisis and, of course, with climate change. And I think that some of projects are also very closely connected with finding a way to solve those problems somehow, maybe. And on one hand, it's, for example, uh, Jérôme Bell, who already in 2019, he decided not to fly anymore because he said it's just, you know, such a ecological crime to just, you know, fly <laughs> all the time back and then and to create choreographies in different countries around the world. So he decided to rehearse online using Skype at the very beginning. So when the pandemic broke, he was very well prepared. He knew how to do it. He was the first one who was ready. And uh, so now he says that he knows that it's very important to be able to meet in person, but probably not all of the flights and very, very expensive travels are needed. And also theater wastes lots of money and lots of different stuff. For example, a friend of mine who works at the National Opera in Warsaw, she's also shocked by it that, for example, she directed a contemporary Polish opera based on Bobby Dick. And they built like, you know, the whole fleet of ships on stage and everything it was so expensive and they played it only three times and then they destroyed it all and it cost like millions of zlotys. And it was, you know, completely crazy. And she says, I don't want to do it anymore. And I, I feel so sorry for all the people who built this stage design. And now they are watching it, you know, being burnt. It's such a cruel and unjust situation. And she said, I'm going to create hybrid projects. So, you know, for example, part of stage design would be streamed. I can stream the sea. I don't have to build, you know, the hardware on stage. I don't have to waste money on it because it's not what opera is about. I would rather pay the musicians that are very underpaid and not, you know, build enormous stage design like in, you know, 1920s Hollywood. So I think this is something that is very important, that we, we are in the time that we really have to decide what are we going to do with, with our, you know, economics, otherwise it goes to, to, to culture. Uh, 
Yes, so now we're addressing these ethical questions. Uh, that's really important about uh, also footprints that we need. Uh, and Richard, would you like to ask a question yourself, which is asking the, the question of ethics of theater in a different way? You know what, I think that I, I like where the discussion's going. It's very organic. So I, I don't really, you know, you keep chatting. I, I, I love where it's going. There's so many things to think about. And just actually of the ethics, because I was looking at this the other day, within religious worship, what about these cults? I mean, there was the girl who um, murdered a young boy about, I think it was six or seven years ago for the Slender Man, this digital creation. You know, this was a sort of cult. Um, she got out of jail a few weeks ago. I think they released her from the psychiatric ward. But, you know, questions of how do these cults or new religious movements, you know, and how will they use it? So um, even, you know, nationalist, I mean, in Europe, the fear of the far right, how are the far right going to manipulate this? They're moving in on everything at the moment, especially in early modern and medieval things. They're really eager to say this is white culture. It's not. It's not. That that doesn't exist yet. So um, it's scary. But anyway, sorry. Please continue the, the dialogue. I love where it's going. It's so nice and, and organic and refreshing. So thank you all. Going off in, in plenty of directions, actually. actually yeah. <laughs> um, we could talk about the, the archival functions of that kind of theater for both people who are dead and who are alive uh, still. So, and also theatrical practices, obviously. We haven't really fully addressed these institutional differences as well. So would you like to do that? Particularly those people involved in putting on theater, uh, Cornelius and Lucy. It's an interesting one for us in terms of we've not really streamed our shows. We've always done it that they're live in a Zoom call or in our new platform auditorium. We do now have an archive of them all. So we have a Vimeo account that we keep private, that we have them all on. So in a way that we never had for our very few of our analogue shows, have we been able to film to a standard where they really capture the experience. It's a very, very expensive thing to do. So for particularly a site-specific show and maybe one that moves around or promenades or is in multiple locations, to get a good quality capture of it was always a challenge. So we have very few of our previous shows, but our digital work is all beautifully archived. But it's a constant sort of, um, I suppose, a kind of ethical question in terms of how much we value liveness, what we do with that archive and how we allow people to access it. We get requests every week from a lot of people in academia, you know, other people within the sector saying, I missed this show can I please watch the recording? And there's always a bit of a, a pull there of what you actually do with it, because actually if it becomes a video of an experience in Zoom, is that actually losing part of the magic of it when people watched it? And also we've always felt that, that part of what we're trying to do digitally is replicate all the stuff that happens outside of the actual show as well. So it's about how the whole experience is framed, which I'm sure ties into a lot of the experiences with religious work online as well, that it isn't just what the actual performance that's being created is. It's how do I enter that experience? What happens while I wait for it to start? What happens when I leave the experience? What makes me value it as an event? What makes me value it as a thing that I put into a busy schedule? And, you know, I think a lot of us have had the experience of stuff which is available at any time. You know, in some respects can be really sort of freeing because you can access it whenever. But it also can lead to there's so many shows I wanted to watch that were streamed for three weeks that I never watched because I could watch them at any time. Whereas when I had to book in and I knew this is the moment to watch it, it becomes a different contract with the audience. So I think where those archives live and how we access them and the, the difference between the, the difference between the archive and the live event is closer. It's more 
indistinguishable than watching something in a theatre and looking at an archive of a video or a piece of writing about it. So I think we do have to sort of be very careful how we treat those things at the moment and how we frame them and how we talk about them. These performances, they are part of a big copy and paste machine, aren't they? So do you think there's a need to protect actually the integrity of the work and also maybe the work of the actors, etc.? And do issues of copyright come in there? And, um, you know, how do you deal with that? Yeah, well, it's a whole new, and we're finding, like, certainly in the UK, that a lot of the issues of, like, particularly for performers and for, like, what music we can use and and even within a boring administrative side, how we fund shows, what kind of tax breaks were applicable. None of the systems are set up for live digital work. So we're, you know, we're in the process of working out with equity what the structure is of what we pay performers to do and how we make digital work pay well enough but also allowing for the limitations. I know um, Pascal and, and Rachel were speaking earlier in the work about the digital transformation report. They wrote that, that actually, you know, there is Zoom fatigue. We can't rehearse digitally for the same length of time we would do in a rehearsal room. But then if we only pay performers for two or three hours a day, it isn't a sustainable job to be doing. It, you know, they're not going to do it. They're going to do second or third jobs on top of it. So there's a lot of work that we're all sort of experimenting with and trying to work out at the moment about how we and what are the rights for the work after it's live if it's streamed you know we can't achieve in the theatre sector in the UK the kind of arrangement that you have for film and TV that's you know the cost is is astronomically higher than it would be for theatre but at the same time performers they are they are there in the show and it's going to have a life for, for many many years to come that people can access and how do we fairly recompense them for it had an interesting conversation earlier, earlier in the week about blockchain and, and ways that we might solve all of this with that. But um, I'm only just starting to understand what the conversation even meant at the moment. <laughs> that's interesting. I mean, it has the feel of that we are in a long-term experiment that's been inflicted on us and, and um, trying to deal with that. Would you like to respond to that, Cornelius, as well? Well, I, what I find really, really interesting was probably my biggest learning uh, uh, during the pandemic in terms of theater practice was definitely the, the point or the aspect of what happens when a theater shuts the doors, when it comes to the question of the platform. And with the platform, I also mean, of course, the stage, because as soon as you close the stage and it's not allowed to enter the stage itself, of course, people create alternative stages or alternative platforms. And as soon as you do that, the whole idea of the public that is gathering there is completely changing because you're leaving the public sector, so to say. Like in most cases, theater is still shown in the public, not in the private. And suddenly you find yourself on uh, American servers or Haitian uh, companies, or I don't know, wherever the digital companies are actually like they, who's the owner and who decides what is allowed and what is not allowed, which words I'm allowed to, to say on TikTok, for example, or which topic I can address or not. For example, today, just, just reporting from my everyday theater practice, I got an email from Apple because tomorrow we are planning to launch an app together with Remini Protocol. And the app store was sending us an email saying, we found your app's metadata includes references to the COVID-19 pandemic in app description. Next steps. To bring your app into compliance with these guidelines, remove all references to the COVID-19 <laughs> pandemic from your app's metadata. So if you're not an official uh, institution, you're not allowed to use the word COVID-19 in your app description. 
And comparing this to a situation where you stage a play, let's say, and of course you say every word that you want to say, more or less, this changes the whole game, right? And uh, I was like super shocked when I read this because I was like, I'm not allowed to say COVID-19? Are you kidding me? What's that? And uh, this is what happens as soon as you change the platform, as soon as you change the stage, the whole idea of public sphere completely changes. And this is like a really, Big issue, I think. So, so you used to be a, a theater maker, uh, and now you're a content creator. Theater making is content creator. It's like a different framework and a different like origin maybe of the word, but I'm like, of course, it's the same. Way. But in spaces and on platforms, yeah, like, right. Where you now have to be familiar, you have to be experts, etc. So you bring in the experts with various knowledge and technology, in, in issues of copyright and issues of legal. I mean, it's, sometimes can be, I think, overpowering. Yeah, of course. To be honest, I have no idea what I'm doing there. I'm just like trying to find out if I can adapt my ideas of theater to these different uh, places, spaces, platforms, and so. And all of a sudden, I'm tackling like issues I've never thought of. And uh, well, uh, we have to find new ways how to deal with it, I guess. So. <laughs> Almost like COVID-19 is copyrighted. Yeah. <laughs> okay, any questions here from the local floor? Can I respond to that just, just briefly? What what Cornelius was saying. I think there's something really interesting here because, you know, I one of the things I talked about was the kind of, I think I used the word democratization of ritual or religious life. It's the same sort of thing. Okay, the doors to the official theater, the official church are closed. What happens? A million people do their own thing. And we want to celebrate that, right? That sounds good. But this gets to that question of Actually, one of the reasons we had these institutions was as a kind of guardian or way of keeping something safe and, and articulating the values that should apply there. And certainly that's the case in religion and theater as well. You know, that's the notion of artistic autonomy. Once you step outside of those boundaries, even if you're doing it because you have to, well, we can't assume necessarily all of those values. So there was a question about kind of cultic practices and not in the kind of the way the anthropologists use the term, but in a negative sense. Um, that is absolutely a danger. You know, when I, I talk about charismatic preachers, you can go anywhere you want with that. And there are certainly online religious practices that I would find horrifying. But who am I to judge that? We didn't see so many of them in Britain. That might have been the way that we conducted our research. You know, people don't tend to admit to it. And I, and I don't think it's very British. But to some extent, it links back to the ecological thing. You know, when Lucy was talking about the degree of carbon emission went down 97, 98%. I mean, that's extraordinary. Everybody loves that. But broadcast is efficient in a lot of ways. It's ecologically efficient. It's economically efficient. It's intellectually efficient. Netflix, if you look at the total watching of Netflix in the world, compared to if all of those people went to a theater with something that was built for them. I mean, the ecologies are not close. That's not to say we should always do Netflix. You know, I think this is part of what I was getting at. There's this tension between the specific, the community that you are a local part of, and the thing that might be of higher quality, that might be interesting, that might have resources that you don't, that it kind of can be downloaded or can be accessed. So, which is why actually I think Cornelius's idea of the toolkit, you know, there are these tools online that aren't in and of themselves enough. You know, you don't just kind of gobble them down the way you would Netflix, but they require someone to actualize them in some way. That actually strikes me as a really productive way forward. You know, 
it's all a matter of balancing different values, but I think we have to think about that. And the, the legal status of that sort of thing is, you know, is an issue as well. There's a difference between Wikipedia and the App Store. You know, there's a difference between the intellectual property rights or the, the ethics of what you're putting online with Rooney Protocol and what Apple might be doing. You know, when we want to work in this online world, the online world is controlled by, you know, things like Facebook and Apple and that kind of thing. Or it's not, but the same way, it makes as much sense to say the internet is controlled by big companies just as it does to say buildings are controlled by big companies. Well, some of them are and some of them aren't. You know, we have to become more fluent in navigating this new terrain. Hybridity, right? So not aesthetic hybridity, but a kind of informational hybridity or content hybridity that you're now, as a theater, you've entered a world that was maybe separate from you before. Yeah, well, you tried to build a wall between it and you before, and that wall has gotten chipped away. So you've got to see what's out there. Okay, so shall we continue with the church for a while? Because um, thank you very much, Josh, for introducing that. And as you were speaking, uh, myself being born in Poland and having that background, that's yeah. clearly something that you cannot forget, right? And I remember, Julia, when we were talking about today students, young students, not having an experience of going to the theatre, the actual theatre. I think I, or my generation, because we were Catholic, that was our theatre for a while. So again, this ritual, yeah, <laughs> sorry to say, but that was the case, something that we have not been thinking about or talking about, and that's, I remember easy today in the morning was talking about the anxiety of going back to the actual theatre, getting infected or whatever and then I remembered because when you asked Josh about the similarities I was thinking about the latest conversations I have had with my parents and what they were talking about were how many priests actually died of COVID because they went out to parishes and because they did go and help people and I've been wondering how have we been talking about that and theatre makers at all so I don't know whether there is any sort of experience where they're just being talked about. So is there going back to the actual theatrical venues? Is it related to any sort of anxiety on the part of the theatre makers and actors? I don't know. I, I just think that this is something that we should acknowledge. This is part of that ethical question, I think, that came up. I mean, the only thing I've seen, and this is just, you know, what comes up on my Facebook feed, sorry, is about technicians who are building sets who are asked to work very long days in too close quarters without adequate ventilation and things like that. I think that was in, in America. But I can't imagine that there isn't anxiety there. I mean, I'd be shocked if there wasn't. And especially with you know the West End or commercial theater, there's a kind of economic imperative to get bums in seats because that's how you pay for it. And you know you could see economic imperatives and public health working at cross purposes here but i'd be interested to see what other people have heard well i'm opening a show tomorrow so we're at probably peak anxiety um of having a show in a real space and um current uk situation of the pandemic where we're all terrified of everyone getting uh, notified that they have to self-isolate for 10 days but i also have one performer who has not had any vaccinations so i'm also terrified that if we don't stick to all the rules you know we're not really diligent about isolating if we get pinged and staying two meters apart about you know that responsibility to her and you know it's the first 
analog in-person show we've actually done because to be quite honest I didn't have the stomach for it until now the responsibility of the health of our audiences and the health of our performers and and the kind of risk that we would be taking putting people in a live space set against that I would say that a big part of the anxiety for me is also that real theatre particularly when you don't manage the same space all the time and you do use different spaces is always quite a dangerous thing. You are always putting performers and audiences into an environment they're not used to. We did first aid training a couple of years ago and we went on a first aid course that was run by an external company and all the other sort of people on the course were lorry drivers. And there were three of us from theatre. And throughout the day, the trainer kept saying, right, now we're going to go through somebody uh, having a big wound to the head. I expect you lorry drivers have encountered this, but you won't have done the theatre. And the lorry drivers all go, no, I've never had that happen. And we'd go, yeah, we've had that happen. And then they'd go, okay, now we're going to go through suspected heart attack. Who's had that? Yeah, we've had that happen. And at the end of the day, they all turned to us and went, theatre is much more dangerous (laughs) than any of us thought. But it's partly volume of people. We have thousands of people pass through our hands on a daily basis and we're responsible for their health and safety so for me on quite a personal level digital work and the pandemic removed this enormous anxiety of responsibility for our actors for our performers and for our audience's safety and knowing that they were in their own homes that we didn't have to take care of that we could just focus on the storytelling and the engagement and I didn't need to worry that someone was going to trip on a step that I'd spent hours taping up, but maybe I hadn't put quite enough glow tape on it. So, you know, I think there is anxiety, but I think it's also a return to a level of risk and a level of anxiety that we've had a break from. And just follow up on that, because I've been thinking about the idea of theatre as a, as a risky place. Uh, and we can just say, okay, theatre is contagious, but it's just a metaphor, uh, and we'll leave it at that. But, you know, it is a risky place. And I'd be thinking, but actually, you know, you might think of, um, you know, an online stream Zoom performance as something that's not as risky uh, and therefore more controlled, a more controlled environment, which in fact it probably isn't. And that has, I think, to do with the idea of the archive again, because I'm thinking about, you know, just a, a very innocent meeting of a parish council, which turns out to be, you know, a global mean phenomenon. Uh, and suddenly you're on everybody's screen. And that's terrifying, isn't it? So there are other kinds of risks involved here. Uh, and that, I think, sometimes makes it a more controlled space in the sense that you really, like in the real theater, you want to have control over what's happening. Well, you can't. I mean, that's part of the fun. Uh, but you, you want to have control over how things unfold. And we've been talking about this, actually, this idea of, you know, the the hybridity of, on one hand, wanting to control events, and then on the other hand, having a kind of residual notion of, then it's uncontrollable. Absolutely. And I think very much like, um, sort of Josh was alluding to about the sort of successful religious events being the ones where it's a little bit more casual or scrappy or things go wrong that actually it's that balance of we have control, but it's also, you know, audiences love things going wrong. Audience love a performer dropping out of a call. Audience love a bandwidth problem. And it's the same way if you're in a theatre and there's a power cut. If you're in a theatre and it rains, they love it. They love it when an actor goes off and you have an understudy on. But I think it's those things that really get the uniqueness of the moment. Well, when I saw it, he has a bandwidth problem. You know, they love that. And I think that that's a, you know, a tension as we go forward in digital work and we get better and better at it is, is actually, you know, not 
resisting or playing or being very careful about how we explore the pull of the Netflix level quality and are we aiming for something beautiful and live you know that could be a film or actually is it the bits where it goes wrong the bits where it's rough around the edges that are the the really exciting thing that distinguishes it. I don't know if anybody's seen the Swamp Motel shows over the course of the week. Lucy in, in hearing you talk I'm thinking about those. I don't want to offer an overall judgment but at their worst they seem to be trying to be television. And in that, I was very disappointed with them. Yeah, as Catherine has just said online, liveness is the mistakes and accidents, uh, or the possibility at least of glitches, I think. I think there's another comment, right? So can can I continue with the glitch as the final question? Of course, it's your conference, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) That's true, as well as power. it, that, that is a question to Lucy, in a way, but also Cornelius, perhaps. Uh, we've been talking about glitches, and I've been wondering if there were glitches, whether they were inspiring and sort of like a springboard for something new. Oh, absolutely. There was a brilliant moment in Tempest where Caliban's bandwidth went really low. So Zoom automatically said Caliban's bandwidth is low. And we found that people watching the show were interpreting that as an artistic choice that his bandwidth was low at that moment. It was a commentary on his status. It was an absolute joy. And, th- and then obviously we couldn't then fake that, but it was a kind of beautiful serendipitous moment. But when we did our next Zoom show, when we did the time machine, we seemed to have a particularly bad sort of stretch of reliability of internet. And we often had people drop out. So we had to create a whole system in the narrative where the time traveller could change who they were. And if someone dropped out, someone else would go parallel reality and just jump in and pick up the scene. But it made again for a kind of it was a glitch. It was a thing that was broken. It was a thing that wasn't right. But actually, it just became built into the fabric of the show that these parallel reality moments could happen when none of us expected them. Well, maybe we should end on this notion of Caliban's low bandwidth and as Pascal has just shared in Zoom, you can translate that as Prospero's rough magic. Thanks to all the participants of the panel, unless there is some famous last word I'd like to add. So Anna, Cornelius, Lucy, and Josh, thanks for this. I think we're going to continue the conversation. And I think that's also applies to the entire conference. I could actually ask for a show of hands on behalf of everyone right now, which I'd like to do. So. Yeah.